0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Music Note Podcast, where we'll be exploring the different occupations and careers linked to the art of music. I'm your host, Lori Leanne. In this episode, we'll be talking to my friend and legendary artist Patrice Russian. Most of you know her from hit songs like Forget Me Nots and Remind Me, but her musical catalog contains so much more, and her groundbreaking achievements are to say the least impressive. Listen as we talk to her about her musical journey, music education, and the future of music. Hello Patrice Russian and welcome to the Music Note Podcast. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing great. Great to great to be with you. Well, thank you so much for being here. We've known each other for a very long time, and I'm very happy and I'm very honored to have you as my first guest on this podcast. I mean who'd better to kick things off it, right? especially when I look at your musical journey. You have such a diverse and impressive career. You've been called a producer, a music director, a songwriter, a multi-instrumentalist, and the list goes on. But how would you best describe your profession?
1: Mm. Well, music for me involves all of those things that you mentioned. And I think each of those job titles enhances my ability to do the other. What I mean is I think I'm a, a good composer because I've been a good player on other people's projects, you know, as a side person. I've learned a lot and I bring that, those different experiences to everything that I do. So while they are different hats or different jobs, they're very, very related and it gives me an opportunity to just enjoy music from so many different perspectives.
0: Well, you started classical piano training at a very young age. When did you know that you wanted to pursue a career in music? Did you have a specific occupation in mind? I first started uh, playing music. It was just because my parents
1: were very, very involved in you know our lives, in noticing things about their kids that they could enhance and help to support. And when it became obvious that I had some musical ability they were like okay this is great what what do we do because both my parents worked and so I was in a nursery school for a while and the teacher there was very musical and knew about a program that did just that would support uh, young kids who seem to be uh, gifted in music and give them a chance to take music lessons I was involved in those lessons and as you said by the age of five started playing the piano Uh, but I was doing it for the enjoyment at first And then, you know, you get to be about 12 and you realize that, oh, wait a minute, you want to be just like everybody else and none of your other friends have to practice before they go outside and have to take these lessons. And so I really sort of rejected for a little bit the idea of music being fun because the practicing, especially playing piano, you play alone, it just didn't seem fun anymore. But I did have very wise parents and they suggested, well, why don't you do something where you could play with other people? And I learned to play the flute, and I was able to play in the orchestra and the band at my school, because we had orchestra and band as part of our education then, even in public school. It renewed my idea about music. It gave me a different perspective, because suddenly I'm involved as a part of something, and playing with others, and that collaboration, sitting and listening right in the middle of the orchestra, was a tremendous boost to my piano playing and my awareness of music and sort of rekindled that fire about the music, but still I had not figured out what I wanted to do. So it really wasn't until high school that I started being able to actually see the possibilities for what I wanted to do. We were introduced to music in terms of not just one way of being able to be a musician. We were introduced to people who played in the studios, We were introduced to also people who were professors and teachers. We were introduced to arranging and arrangers and orchestrators. And of course, jazz musicians who would come to town to play. We were introduced to that way of life. We would also go and watch the L.A. Phil. So we saw that the idea of music and musicianship could look like a lot of different things. And that's when I was able to kind of see myself lean in a little bit more towards the writing, especially for film and television. That's what I wanted to do. But I, but I kept playing the whole time.
0: Do you think that not only your interest, but also your curiosity, helped develop your skills to explore all those different areas?
1: Yes, I think I was also very, very, very motivated because my peer group we were all very motivated to be our best selves. We pushed each other. And so, you know, we would talk to each other about the music. We would share musical ideas. We would talk about practicing. We would talk about trying to meet certain kinds of goals. And that was really a big help. So it was not only, you know, what I was learning from music teachers and and mentors from from that perspective, but it was also very important, the peer-to-peer learning, the feeling of community, of us working towards certain kinds of goals together and holding each other accountable. So networking is a big part of the process. A huge part. And at first, that networking looks like sharing common information, learning from one another, observing one another's process. It looks like that at first. But that morphs into a certain kind of understanding and trust and ability to ask of another something that you need them to do and know that they're going to come to the table ready, ready to perform, willing to give to the music, willing to help you get done what needs to get done because there's a commonality and a common understanding about each role that everyone plays in in making a project happen.
0: Did you ever experience any difficulties during your professional life because you were one of the few women in the music business at the time.
1: I, I don't think I had too many experiences where being female stopped me from doing what I wanted to do. I think at first, especially coming up high school and college, the more important thing was the music itself and who could bring a certain technique and identity and feeling to the music. And so I was actually from my peers who were primarily male, uh, playing music, particularly playing jazz. They were very protective of me, actually. So it was a, <laughs> it was a very easy way for at a very volatile time in one's development where you're very vulnerable while you're trying to learn to do something new and experimenting a little bit with how to make it happen. And you're in your teens or your late teens and, you know, emotionally you're dealing with that roller coaster and, you know, there's a lot going on. But to have the respect and the protection of my peers made a created a very healthy framework for me to focus on the music. Now, maybe behind my back there were other things being done or said, but the way I was treated was actually with kindness and with respect and almost like this is our little sister. You don't mess with her type of thing.
0: Well, that's a good thing. When you have all these skills and you have the knowledge, how did you promote yourself so you would get noticed and people would hire you for certain projects?
1: Well, at first I I was kind of proactive. And if I needed to do some things like when I was in school, I would just put some people together and we would go and play parties and dances and things like that. And so I learned what it meant to be in a leadership position of also creating opportunities. As a professional, later on, you know, you need an agent or you need a manager to help you do some of those kinds of things, you know, on a, on a larger scale. And ironically, those were about the times where I started then being able to see the female difference in terms of treatment. I wasn't treated badly, but I also it was just kind of like the situation where, you know, you just. You just notice how people do not expect that much. They don't expect for you to ask too many questions. They don't expect for you to to know very much. They don't expect for you to be that inquisitive about stuff. You know, you just show up and play or sing, honey. That's what you do. And um, those were the kinds of things that I, as I began to move on towards in the the professional ranks, where I knew that there were some real discrepancies uh, and bias as far as... uh, Females and particularly female instrumentalists. Um, But to your question in terms of how did you promote or whatever like that, you know, I didn't worry about it too much. I think we're living in a time now where people are trying to get all of these things together at the same time. They're trying to learn how to do something, but they're also trying to promote themselves and feel like, you know, that those two things have to happen simultaneously. It was different Back in the day, and it's a good thing that it was because you learn to do something well first so that you actually have something to market, something to stand on that allows people to see your offering as something special, unique, studied or presented with a certain kind of heart and humility that comes out of the hard work that it takes to do anything well. And uh, if, you, if you're doing, if you're trying to get that together at the same time that you want thousands of eyes watching you, man, uh, that's a different uh, situation and one that I don't know, you know, I don't know that I would have been comfortable with.
0: Well, during your musical journey, you became the first female music director for big shows like the Emmy Awards, the Grammy Awards, the NAACP Awards, just to name a couple. You were not only the first female music director at the time, but you were also the first female music director of color. How did you get into those shows?
1: The first thing was, you know, I, that's what I had always wanted to do. I wanted to be on, on television, in television, involving the music for variety shows and series and things like that. I didn't have a pathway. I didn't know exactly how that was going to happen, but... What I learned along the way is that sometimes when you set your sight on a certain target, you know, you're guided towards different activities. Hopefully they give you the tools to be able to just one step in front of the other, keep going towards the thing that you want to do. And in this case, you know, uh, it was years. It took a long time, but I had made some records and had developed, you know, a certain fan base. And one of those fans, when he got ready to do his very first movie, was looking for a composer. And since it was his first movie, he did not necessarily know who the composers were, so he went to the different agencies to look at these names of people and try to find somebody who he felt could be recommended to do the the music for his movie. That director's name was Robert Townsend, and he was doing a movie called Hollywood Shuffle. And when he went to the different film agents, you know, he didn't recognize any names, I had... Just prior to him going to look, I had signed with an agency as a composer. And when he went to the particular agency and saw all the names, I'm the one, the name that he recognized. He recognized it because he was a fan of the music, of the music that I had been doing that had nothing to do with film. It was stuff you heard on the radio, the dance music. And he said, I want to use her. And of course, to the surprise of the agent, you know, they were like, what? She just... They don't know me, really, or anything. They just have me on their roster. So that was the first opportunity that I had, you know, to do his that movie. And it's a cult movie sort of now, one of those ones that was a big pivot moment for so many young black comedians and people that we, names that we identify with, you know, uh, today, because so many of those were his friends that he put in the movie and uh I was able to do the music. Well, this movie came out, did really well. He got five specials on home box office, HBO. They gave him five comedy specials. And then he needed a music director to do these five comedy specials which were like variety shows. And um he said, "Can you do that?" Of course I can. So I did. I did those five and then other directors and producers watched those shows and said, Oh, they notice who's doing music, who's doing this, who's doing that. And I got a call to do the Image Awards after that, which I did for about 12 or 13 years straight. From that, during that time, somebody said, well, could you do the Emmys? And then from that, well, could you do the Grammys? So each thing helped the other thing. Each thing prepared me for the next one that came along. And I was just trying to do the work. I, I, I love the work. I loved being able to work with my peers, employ some of them, meet new people of like mind who appreciated what I brought to the table in terms of leadership and also arranging and things like this, use the different kinds of skills that I had developed over the years. So it was great. And it wasn't until way after that, you know, it was called to my attention, you know, you're the first woman to do this, or you know, you're the first woman of color to do that, or the only person of color to do this, or blah, 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 blah. It wasn't until after that I realized the impact that your work can have on other people. And uh appreciating that makes me very humble, you know, that so many people have told me, you know, over the years that it was because they saw me do something that they felt like they could do it too.
0: Exactly. Because That was something that I wanted to ask, if you were aware at that time of the importance. I mean, you are a big part of music history as you look back at the fact that you were the first female and and first female of color to do all those types of things. Yet, if you look back now, don't you think it deserved more attention and and more recognition? Because it's a pretty big deal when you look back at it.
1: Well, looking back at it now, I would say, yeah. People needing to be made aware of it in terms of it being that kind of contribution, I think, would be important so that we don't have to keep looking back wondering, you know. It is interesting because I know that there's been enough time that has passed now for that not to be, those kinds of things, maybe not to be overlooked. And it's not like I need the pat on the back or anything like that, uh, but... But it is interesting that when, you know, you go places where they're supposed to be chronicling a certain kind of development of something and something that is that important. And especially now with the raised consciousness about how people see themselves and what the contributions have been, um, there are places where I would have expected to have seen, you know, my name listed.
0: Yes, me too. <laughs>
1: But we hope that people continue to try to uh, ask questions. And when they do, that uh, it keeps coming up over and over and over. And, you know, that people then realize, oh, OK.
0: Having all this knowledge and experience, what was the best lesson learned when you look at your career right now? Oh,
1: that's a very good question. Very good question. I think one, there've been a, there've been a few, quite a few lessons, but I would say the main ones over the course of my career, the main one has been to learn to be patient. Hard one. Everything is not going to happen at once. And there's only so much that over which you have control. Second lesson. So the things over which you have control, make sure you're, you got that together. Make sure you're super ready for the opportunity should something come up to be able to nail it, to be able to do a good job, to be able to make a difference and be efficient and all of those those things. The third big lesson is that you'll always have that little voice in the back of your head that tells you you can do something, but there's always the other one that says, ah, you can't do that. Or that won't work you know there's always the two sides that are competing with one another and artists in particular hear both both of those voices at the same volume and what you have to learn to do is push one of them more forward and let the other one go to the background and not find reasons and excuses to not try it's hard And sometimes, you know, you'll start and it doesn't work out exactly like you had planned. You fail and you say, "Okay, well, that's it. But in those failures or in those times that it doesn't work out exactly as you had planned are the are the building blocks to the next lesson towards the success of it working. So to learn to appreciate that, if you can imagine it, there's probably a way to get get it going. And that the hardest thing is to start. If you start, if you can just make yourself start, it will reveal all of the next steps. But that's so much easier said than done. But I think those are the lessons that the primary lessons that have come out of, you know, years and years of starting and stopping and going and not going, retreating and then saying, no, I'm just going to go for it and just doing it. You know, I've had it. I've, I've experienced each of those levels.
0: And when you look back at everything, are there any regrets that you have?
1: No, you know, I, I'm i very, very fortunate that even the things that seemed to be, you know, represent a certain kind of downward slope or a dark period were actually the buildup to the, the next level. So rather than look at it from the standpoint of th- something going down, looking at it from the standpoint of, you know, the energy you need to, to push things to the next level. So, no, there's nothing... There's nothing that I would say that I regret. I've really had a charmed, charmed life. And I really know that I've had a lot of support from other people. So the other thing that, that, that I know that is important in doing what I'm doing and and continuing to learn, because I'm learning every day still, but it's to pass that knowledge or those experiences on to other people, because the people did that for me. And I think that that's what helped to keep me on a on a a path towards a certain type of success.
0: Yes. Well, that's the next thing I want to talk to you about, which is music education. I mean, every year I meet up with you in this beautiful city of Valencia, located in Spain, uh, because besides being an artist, you're also an educator. And the reason we meet in Valencia is because you are the ambassador of artistry and education at the Berklee College of Music, and they have a beautiful location in Spain. But you are also the chair of the popular music program at the USC Thornton School of Music, which is located in California. I had the honor and privilege to visit both schools, and I attended the classes that you teach. What I notice is not only the love that you have for music, but also the passion and the joy you have Of passing on the knowledge to your students. They love hearing you talk and they're always intrigued by your stories. And uh, a lot of them are always disappointed when, you know, class is over because (laughs) there's still so much information that you could share with them. I think uh, it also has to do with the fact that you have lived the life of a musician um, and shows that in this case that the experience comes in handy. What are your thoughts on that? Did it make teaching easier for you? For me, it's been
1: the most important asset that I have, you know, had the good fortune to be involved with those two music programs. Each one of them bringing a great deal of value to the kinds of experiences that I've had as a practitioner of these skills. So I'm not just talking from the standpoint of The theory about what it is, but I'm also talking from the standpoint of a practitioner who has applied those actions and theories and knowledge out there in the world and been able to receive a certain amount of feedback on what works uh, the best and what kinds of skills and what kinds of uh, multiple uh, musical experiences there are out there uh, for people. The bottom line is that what you find out is that in most of our music schools and art schools the the bottom line for most of the students is that they want to do something in their lives that allow them to continue to be creative and if they can learn certain kinds of skills uh there's lots of ways to be creative and to contribute. And so the idea of playing presents the idea a a larger idea of collaboration teamwork the idea of taking your lesson is to be able to usually bring the best of yourself into a collective into a group and be able to help that group shine the idea of learning what it means to create music learn about songwriting learn about composition even if you never do it it allows you to appreciate When somebody does present you with a great song, a great lyric, a great title, it gives you the sense that what you do is a part of a larger picture and you want to bring your best self to that larger picture. Sometimes in that process, you also learn about things that you would not have known about yourself. So I've seen it over and over and over again where person comes in they they're a bass player that's what they do that's what they know that's the platform that they start with if they are allowed and encouraged to use the platform of their bass playing to learn how to contribute in other ways to the music you could look up and have somebody who determines who finds out that they're a good producer who finds out that they're actually a good songwriter or who finds out that they're actually a good arranger or good leadership Even if they decide, I don't want to do any of that, I want to just play bass, their bass playing changes for the better because they see it in the context of what other people need. They just don't show up to any gig as just a bass player. Now they show up aware of what's happening and how they serve the music in what it is that they're doing. So I I like to say that the individuals emerge out of a collective activity. And so do marketable skills that allow people to learn different things, figure out how they learn things. And music allows them to do that and then be able to use the fact that they learn how they learn to be able to do anything they want to do. So many people can contribute to music in so many ways. And I know we talk about it all the time as there are all of these different vocations, you know, that you'll be exploring you know, in, in, in your future podcasts uh, that people never thought of that are all a part of being creative and all a part of being able to serve the music that they love.
0: Yes, because that's one of those things. Getting the right and useful information is very important because we only focus on the stuff that's right there in front of us while there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. What are the best resources that not only helps you along the way, but also helps your students become aware of the options there are in music. The
1: students are learning to pay attention to, to all, of the, uh, all of the ways things are put together. That's the best way to learn something, I think, for a lot of people, is to identify it and say, well, okay, this works. Why? Pull it apart and see what, what's it made of. So when we're learning material, learning repertoire, let's say, in our performance classes, It's just not picking random songs. There's lessons inside of certain songs that uh, allow you to uh, be able to experiment with how things are put together. And you take that information and that language as building blocks to inform how you do your own thing or how you contribute to somebody else's thing. Same situation when you're in a band and things have to be set up and all. Who's that? Who's who's setting stuff up? What has to be thought of in advance so I can just walk in here and plug in and go? Somebody had to set this stuff up on a stage, have an idea of all of the spacing and what needed to happen, what kinds of things are needed, organize that time so that everything is up and ready to go. That's a job. It's a professional job. It takes the form of being a technician, which we used to call roadies, or it takes the form of of a tour manager who has oversees all of that and plugs in people to deal with that production managers, stage managers, people who are involved in lighting, sound technicians, people who are there to make sure that each instrumentalist on the stage gets what they need to get set designers who built the stage. You know, there's so many different things to consider. And no matter what you do, those skills are transferable, not just for music, but for also stage plays, theater, uh, broadcast, news broadcast, television, movies, a lot of those skills are transferable. So when you begin to look at how things are done and what else is happening and you pay attention to those kinds of things, I think it opens the door for you to find ways to take your, your interests and find ways to be able to be marketable. So that the thing that you love the most, you're able to do it. I've got friends who are, who are very capable you know, players, but felt like they didn't want to do that. But one of them is a very successful sound engineer for film and television now. Well, yeah, he can mix music and dialogue and sound effects and all this stuff. Because for him, it's all frequencies. It's all music. And he's won awards and all kinds of stuff like that. And I met him when he was working in a music store. So see, you never know.
0: Well, you, you just mentioned that there are lessons inside of certain songs. Um, I think it confirms that music history is a very important aspect because in a way it forces you to look back. What are your thoughts about the important role that music history plays and how it can influence the sounds or songs of the future musicians out there? Well,
1: I guess it kind of depends on exactly what the person wants to do. But if the person is going to be a performer or a writer or something like that, even if they're going to be a producer i think you got to go back far enough to be able to understand that it didn't just start with you <laughs> that there's a lot of things that built up to where it is now and the reason that you want to know and have a little bit of command of that trajectory is to understand what that if you're going to be part of that lineage what the responsibility is in terms of holding on to certain kinds of things for there to be the expansion of certain traditions. I'm always disappointed if I see that a student really is talented and really, really wants to know and only has done a certain amount of the work relative to what they think is good and current right now without having to look back, without looking back to see, so what got us here? And it usually makes their music very superficial and they limit themselves. So I think that, you know, just like in anything else, I I can't think of anything that you do where you just step up and start doing it. You need to know some technique. You need to know where it's coming from. You need to know what has happened before. You need to know how people uh, met the challenges when the music was popular in their day. Those kind, That kind of information feeds the contribution that you will ultimately make with your own music or your own recordings or your own production. Uh, how far do you should you go back? I like to look at, man, if you don't go back at least this far, look at who you miss. If you don't go back 30 years, you're going to miss Michael Jackson. If you don't go back 50 years, you could miss the Beatles. You could miss James Brown. You would miss Sly Stone. You would miss Bob Dylan. You would miss a lot. If you don't go back further than that, you'll miss Big Mama Thornton. You'll miss Chuck Berry. You'll miss Jackie Wilson. There's a continuum that happens, and we're just talking about popular music right now. Just that. You know, the jazz tradition, oh my goodness. You know, in other words, there's all of these things where even if it's not about a deep, deep, deep dive, it is about enough of a dive to understand that there's something that built and led to a movement that led to another movement that led to another movement that led to another movement that led to to you. So... To know that is also to take on a certain kind of responsibility about what the music really is and its power. And I think looking back, that also provide you with a certain uh, respect for what it is that you want to do. Not just,
0: yeah, it's fun,
1: but it's hard work too.
0: Is there any advice that you received during your career that you now share with your own students?
1: Yeah, I think the best piece of advice I received was, was, was from Quincy Jones. And I didn't understand it when he told me, but I do now. And we used to play a lot of high school competitions, Battle of the Bands kind of competitions. And, you know, the adjudicators, the judges, were typically people who were from uh, the educational community and the professional community in Los Angeles, of which Quincy Jones was one of those people. And he saw us at quite a few contests, and at one of them, he pulled me to the side. He said, I'm going to talk to you for a second. And... He said, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, sir, I, I want to write, you know. I want to write in charts and play, do television and stuff like that. He, so he told me well, two things. He says, one, well, you know, you're going to have to be really, really good. Okay, I got that. But the other one says, and you want to diversify. You want to find out about everything you can, about all the areas that affect the thing that you want to do. You want to know how those other things work and participate and try to learn as much as you can about those other related situations as they affect the thing that you want to do the most and you know i'm 15 years old and i'm just every hanging on every word and i say okay but years and years later i got that years and years later i got that it was important to pay attention in those ways that allow for you to be curious enough and committed enough to what you want to do, that you would want to know all of the different kinds of things that touch or come into come into focus for what you want to do by paying attention to some of these other areas. And in so doing, it gives you a much different perspective than just going down one narrow path blindly without thinking that that path is affected by other things.
0: So... What do you think is the biggest misconception about working in music? The biggest misconception about working
1: in music is that it doesn't take any work at all. See, the better we do it, the more fun we look like we have. The easier it looks. The better you are at it, the more it just seems to flow. The better you are at it, the more engaged and honest and open... Your communication is, and that's what touches people and reaches people, but you're good at it because you spent the time doing the work. You're good at it because you've put in those, what do they say? The 10,000 hours that it takes to master something. You put those in and, and more. You're good at it because you're continuing to study. You know, you're not finished and you know that there's a lot of things that you, for every 10 things you learn how to do there's 10 more waiting for you. If you're good at it, you're excited about it. And that excitement and that care in wanting others to be able to feel that is something that you give away practically because you know the great feeling behind watching somebody do something really well is priceless so yeah it's, it's the, the misconception is that there's not going to be times when it doesn't go well and the misconception is it's not going to be work that's involved things that you know how to do going to take time developing certain kinds of skills and it doesn't happen all at once but it does happen if you put in the time and your talent and your skill your commitment your being able to submit sometimes to the idea that this is bigger than you all of these things come into play uh, in trying to develop into uh, a good musician
0: okay so now let's talk a bit about the future of music I mean, music has been changing throughout the years when you look at technology, but the same goes for music education. And especially when you look at the state of the world right now with the pandemic going on. You always told me that music is service, but what do you think the effect will be on the future of your job, not only as a musician, but also as an educator? How difficult will it be to maintain that quality?
1: Like everybody else during the pandemic, since we haven't been down this road in our lifetimes before, we don't necessarily know, you know, what that means, what it, what it means on the other side of it. But I always feel like civilizations, looking back, um, what we have is a certain kind of reference point that is usually identified through the culture and identified through art, because art sometimes offers a mirror to what is happening right now, a mirror to what's going on, as well as it offers the possibilities for what could happen in terms of the future. So I will say that I don't think music is going away. (laughs) And I think if anything, it has made people appreciate more the power of music. A lot of people use music to soothe their discomfort right now, uh, with their favorite songs or or listening to a lot of music because it helps them sort of take their mind immediately off of what is right in front of them. It has that kind of restorative power. I think that those of us who are blessed to be able to have music in our lives and play music, man, it's made us so conscious of how much we miss sharing and playing together. Now it hasn't stopped the show. It hasn't stopped the music from happening. You can record easier now than ever. You can share files. You can. There are ways in which you can make music. So the music making doesn't have to stop. But the music experience is one that I think we began to take for granted was not born out of the recordings, but is born out of the witnessing of people playing together, and that. Those moments, that dialogue, that unspoken feeling that happens, that gets transferred onto an audience and then an audience transferring it back and that there's a community and communal activity when you go to a concert. It's not just one way where it's all coming off the stage to the audience. It's two-way. It's coming off the stage to an audience, which gives you a certain kind of gratification, which allows you to push even more towards wanting to bring everybody into the joy of that moment. And it doesn't matter if you're talking a small club with a trio or a quartet or a stadium. That act of watching people play and interact, that's one of the most important parts of what we do as musicians. So I don't think we take that for granted. And I think audiences won't take it for granted. And their standards are going to go up. In terms of what they will accept because time is precious. And if I pay my money and I want to take my time to watch your, your offering of the evening or offering of the day, you need to be coming with it. You need to be doing something that is, yeah, making me feel something. And this little box that we find ourselves in front of the computer screen is very unforgiving. If you don't have something that is really speaking to someone past the dimensions of this box, then you got nothing. So that means that there's going to be a lot of people who typically have had maybe a lot of support in terms of, you know, bells and whistles and smoke and lighting and all of these other kinds of things that are going to find themselves having to say, but what do I really, what do I know how to do where my contribution is not dependent on those things? In terms of me being able to offer my music or offer my representation of my art. And there are some things that are going to come out of this thing, which I think are going to elevate that awareness for both the musicians and the audiences.
0: Yes, because, I mean, at the moment, the pandemic is having a huge impact on the cultural sector. And we see a lot of venues closing and and people are getting insecure about performing and all of that besides that music has always been seen as a hobby and not so much as a profession what would your advice be for those who are having doubts to to take that leap towards the music business
1: well i think if if anything this gives an opportunity to uh young musicians and young artists to really look beyond just the thing that they do. Remember we talked earlier in the interview about whatever you do, singer, songwriter, bass player, guitar player, whatever, that that's a platform to start to, that's a platform to use, to enter into this world that has all of these other components that are transferable skills. This is just your entry point, a way to get in a way to start doing it. But you're right that the pandemic and with so many different kinds of venues closing and things kind of being on that being on that unde- indefinite holding pattern, uh, it gives you a chance to be able to experiment. So a lot of people who would have never gotten a microphone and an interface, they getting one, so that they learn how to use it to be able to communicate with others and to be able to use and get their music or their messages out there a little bit further. Never thought you'd want to need or know how to use. GarageBand or Logic or Pro Tools or something like this. It's a great time to try to see what all of that is about. You, you, you may find that in doing that, especially as musicians, people need, need you to put drums on a particular song or really would love to have violin on this particular piece. Well, if you can say, well, send me the file, I'll put something on it and send it back to you. That's a lot different from, from saying, well, I can't participate at all because I don't even know what to do. We're all learning. Something about certain other related skills. We don't have to do it for a living, but we're learning about it. So the pandemic is kind of forcing what I was just talking about. And if there were no schools that could support what it means to be in an organized collective of people trying to learn something, then I would say, okay, everybody, you know, and it was like that for a while, you know, everybody just do the best you can and. But it is different. There are places to go. There are there are schools, there are collectives, there are clubs, there are the kinds of activities that you can do with people of like mind that can keep you in that attitude of making progress in that mode of feeling a certain kind of movement, which continues to inspire you to practice every day or write or listen or watch a movie that offers you or a documentary that offers you. Yeah, that's right. and keeps reminding you of why you're doing this because you love it and there's something about it that keeps drawing you in to to do it and to do it better and better and better. So
0: hang in there. Well, that's good advice. (laughs) As a segment of the show, I have five random questions for you. And the first being... If you weren't in the music business, what would you be doing right now? Wow. If I wasn't in the music business, I imagine that I would
1: still be gravitating towards something creative. Uh, so the hobbies that I have, I like to cook. So maybe a chef.
0: Oh, well, I know you can cook really well. <laughs> Your all-time favorite song or music piece? Ooh. This is tough.
1: All-time favorite song or music piece. Boy, that is so hard. That is so hard because I love so many different kinds of music that it is hard to kind of pin it down.
0: Uh man. Is there a genre of music that you prefer more than the other? No. No.
1: I I love so many different that that's the problem, or or it used to be and it used to be a liability for me, and I didn't understand it. You know, where people were like, Well, you have to decide. No, you don't. I don't think so. You can like a lot of stuff and they can be really different from one another. That's true. Um, No, I, you know, the, 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 the qualification for me in terms of being able to have it on the list of things that I just love is just that it, there's a certain feeling that you get when you hear or see something done really well and you keep going back to it. And every time you go back, you, go do it you discover something else about it you know it's like you it's it's what you hear when you've heard it 10 times but it's also what you hear when you've heard it 10,000 times yeah and um that's the litmus test for me and I can I can I have that with certain classical composers as much as I would have that with you know jazz as much as I would have that with rock as much as I would have that with blues latin music you know so that question for me is really hard
0: yeah <laughs> What is something people don't know about you?
1: I'd be easier for you to answer than me. (laughs) What is something something you've noticed people don't know about me?
0: (laughs) That you speak French very well.
1: Oh! Well, I'm getting it. It's true. Well, it's true, right? (laughs) Yeah, I've been working on it for a while. I've always wanted to speak another language, and I always found French really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Kind of like music. Yeah. And so I've been working on that for a while.
0: Name someone you would really like to work with in the future. Is there anyone on your list like mm, you have worked with yet? That I haven't worked with yet. Yeah. Or it's, you want to work with
1: again, you know? Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of people that I may have come in contact with, but, we, mm-hmm. but we've not really delved into a project or something like that, and I'd love to. And Stevie Wonder is one of those people. I've known him for a very long time. Um, have been an enormous fan for a long time. We have worked together in contexts of television and specials and things like that and and know each other, but we've never done a project. So that's one
0: person. So when you look back at everything that you've done, what do you believe your purpose in life is?
1: It's only within the last uh, 10, 15 years that I could even begin to address a question like that, because it was about that time that, you know, I'd had a lot of wonderful experiences doing a lot of different things that I wanted to do. And the, those opportunities, you know, continued to happen. It's like, you know, what am I supposed to do with all of this? There was just something about it that just was like, is, and I'm not complaining by any means. I'm feeling very blessed and very happy. But, you know, you get to a point and you say, OK, is is that it? Or I I will continue to do this type of thing? Or where does this lead? Where does this go? And that question and not knowing where all of these wonderful opportunities and all of the the privileged playing experiences and musical experiences and people that I had met and places that I had been, all of this, this kinds of wonderful knowledge, what was I supposed to do with that? It couldn't be just for me. It had to be like, okay, and this leads to, so when I started teaching, when I got back into the fold of education, but this time at a, a, on the a, on a basis of a different perspective, one that allowed for a reboot, a reevaluation, a reframing of what being a successful musician can look like, and that within an education situation, that became the platform to be able to do this reframing in such a way that people could potentially use it as a jumping off point for vocation work meaningful work and skills and the sets of skills then I realized that wow this is why this is why I I was given all of these different things because I can talk about them in the first person I can talk about them from the standpoint of having been there or witnessed it or seen it or know about it or something like this. And so my purpose takes on that of being not just a musician, but also a motivator, a motivator for people to be able to look deeper and see what's right in front of them, ask themselves the hard, hard questions and ask some of the most simple questions, which are the hardest, like, why, why are you doing this? One of the hardest questions ever. But in the search for that why, you find out how to do something and what to do. And in that moment and in those times, that's what keeps you moving forward. So my purpose continues to grow and to morph into making music, into sharing what I've learned, into learning, and then into motivating people to go for it.
0: Yeah, well... I know you are a great motivator, for sure, and you're a great influencer as well. Thank you so much, because this has been a very interesting conversation, and (laughs) there's still so much more to talk about. So hereby, I'm inviting you back for a future appearance. I love it. I love it. Thank you. (laughs) There are still so many things we can discuss. So thank you again for being the first guest on the Music Note podcast. And I'll see you very soon again. Thank you so much, Patrice.
1: All right. Thank you so much. Peace.
0: Thank you, everyone, for listening to the first episode of the Music Note podcast. I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. For more information or you want to leave a comment, please visit our website at musicnote.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to our channel. I hope you'll join me in episode two when we take a look in the world of tour management. I'll talk to you soon. Bye for now.